Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Well, one of the most famous uh, football plays in college football history took place in Pasadena, California on New Year's Day, 1929, taking it way, way back this morning. On the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day, uh, the University of Georgia Tech and the University of California were battling it out for the title of the Rose Bowl. And late in the first half, uh, a guy by the name of Roy Regals uh, picked up a fumble for the University of California and proceeded to run 60 yards in the wrong direction. It was only at the two or the one yard line where a teammate tackled him down before he went into the end zone. Well, a couple of plays later, the University of California was forced to punt from deep in their own end zone. That punt was blocked. The University of Georgia Tech recovered the fumble in the end zone and scored a safety. That safety was the margin of victory for Georgia Tech. Now, during halftime, Roy settled into the corner and he draped a blanket, uh, a, a towel, like a blanket around his shoulders, and he cried like a baby. The locker room was quiet and halftime was coming to an end. And so the California coach, uh, Nibs Price, looked at the team and he simply said, the men who started the game in the first half will be the same team on the field starting the second half. Everyone started out of the locker room except for Roy Regals. There he sat in the corner, broken. The coach approached him and he said, Roy, did you hear me? The same team that played the first half will start the second. Roy Regals looked up at his coach with tears still streaming down his face. And here's what he said, coach, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face the crowd in the stadium to save my life. Coach Price reached out. He put his hand on the shoulder of Roy Regals and simply said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over. Roy Regals did get up and he did go back on the field. He started the second half and he played wonderfully. Although the University of California still lost the game. A story like this moves us to say, wow, what a great coach. What a great coach, right? However, when we come to the third chapter in Jonah, we should be inspired to say, wow, what a great God. How often it is that we run in the wrong direction, just like Regals and just like Jonah. We blow it big time. We drop the ball for God. We conclude that God can no longer use us, that he no longer loves us, and we feel ashamed and we think about giving up, about never trying again. However, I've got great news for you this morning. And the great news is that God never gives up on us. God never gives up on us. He comes to us again and again with challenges and encouragement. He reminds us that it's, it's not our ability that he sees on us. 
He desires as much as it is our availability. He's not looking for talent. He's looking for faithfulness. He's looking for obedience. God works in surprising and marvelous ways through the lives of really ordinary people like you and me. Who simply are willing to say yes. The life of Jonah is a wonderful reminder of this amazing truth that our God is the God of second chances. And that's where we're going to park this morning, that our God is the God of second chances. Now, if you guys have been following along, whether here in person or on the podcast, just a short recap of where we've been. God calls Jonah the first time in chapter one, and what does he do? He runs the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and where Jonah is supposed to bring life, he complains and says no to the call of God, and the pagan sailors get the kingdom of God before they toss him out. They toss Jonah out, the seas are calm, and Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish, the great fish. This fish uh, might from the outside look as though it's a tomb, it's a grave, that's it for Jonah, but God still sees purpose on Jonah's life. You ever get to, through the first two chapters of Jonah and think, gosh, if I was the Lord, if I was God, and thank goodness I'm not, I would have given up on Jonah a long time ago. Well, it would behoove us to be very compassionate with Jonah. Because the book of Jonah, as we read before, is not just the story about a great fish. I'm not going to have you say it again this morning. I think you get it. But it's meant to be read as a mirror and an insight into our own hearts. And so this great fish, which is from the outside looking like a grave or a tomb, it's the end for Jonah, is actually a vehicle to carry Jonah to his assignment, to become who he's created to be. And then Jonah... uh, Uh, praise this prayer from the belly of the great fish, which we talked about last Sunday. And the whale, the whale, oops, the fish, whoops, (laughs) it might have been. Well, the, the fish is commanded by God to vomit Jonah onto the shore. And the fish obeys the word of the Lord where Jonah didn't. And that's where we're left. He's vomited on, on the beach. And so now we get to chapter 3. This is the turning point. And we read this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bible on your phone or the paper, there is a paper version. You can read pages. It's still out there. I can't believe it. But if you'd like to read it in your Bible or on your app, you're welcome to. And we read this, Jonah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. We'll end there for today. The first thing that we see in this passage is that our God is a God of second chances. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second 
time. God is not only the God of second chances, he's the God of another chance. How many of you this morning are glad that God is a God of second chances? Anybody? This is good news, yeah, because most of us mess up the second chance fairly quickly. And the third one, and the fourth one, and the fifth one. One of the amazing facets about God's character is that he's incredibly patient with us. Endlessly patient. In Psalm 86, 15, David writes this, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Micah, the prophet, in another part of scripture, says this, Who is a God like you? He asks rhetorically, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That key little phrase there, that last one, he delights in steadfast love. This is this part of God's character, the chesed. Do you remember last week when we say we have to get in there with the throat if we're going to say the Hebrew chesed? This part of his steadfast love, his commitment to men and women is so intertwined or woven with who he is. We're told here in Micah that he delights in that. The Hebrew word for delights is more akin to a a cheerleader at a football game doing backflips. We're told that he delights in us in Zephaniah, that he's so excited about us, he's actually doing backflips over you. That God sees you that way. And when it comes to showing or expressing this part of his character, that he is steadfastly committed to to loving you, the same element is true. That he's doing backflips. He's so excited to just express this steadfast love towards us, towards anyone. Yeah, the Bible's full of people who receive second chances, isn't it? That's so backwards from what we think when we just come to approach God. That the Bible's full of these perfect people who got it right on the first try and who are so holy and so righteous. But if we really cared to dig into the pages of Scripture, we'd find that these are broken, ordinary people just like you and me. There's only one who got it right on the first try. In all of these pages, there's only one who got it right. That should be an encouragement. You know what his name is? Jesus. He's the one who got it right on the first try so that we can claim God's mercy on the second. Amen. Yeah, Bible's full of people who receive second chances, third, fourth chances. Peter, Jonah, Mark, Samson, David, and others, they're all trophies of God's grace. The pages of Scripture are chocked full of folks who get a second chance. In Jonah's case, he's called to obey the word of the Lord and go to Nineveh. 
And if these verses here in 1 through 5 seem familiar to you, they should. Because we've already read them, in a sense, in chapter 1. This is a literary device that authors or, um, or folks who are into writing would call a hook in return. This is a literary device called a hook in return. So it's almost verbatim with chapter 1 what is happening here to set the scene. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I gave you. Now what's different about this second time around on the return part of the hook is that Jonah obeys. Jonah obeys. And I was thinking about this this week about Jonah's obedience And a lot of times when I thought about the story of Jonah, especially growing up, I thought about the whale or the fish or the sea monster or whatever it was, vomiting or spitting Jonah out right there on the shore of Nineveh. Well, any of you who know anything about the map of the ancient world know that Nineveh is not surrounded by water. And so my take on this is that the, the great fish is commanded to spit Jonah up, and this either happens exactly where he came from in Joppa, that would seem like the Lord, wouldn't it? Take you back to the place until you learn it again. Or somewhere on the coast, anywhere on the coast would be a good 500 miles, you know, southwest of where Nineveh is. And so what we're talking about here really is a long land journey that Jonah needs to take. It's not like he's like, bam, right there on the shores of Nineveh and he starts talking the word of the Lord. He has to travel, whether it's by camel or by donkey or by foot, northeast to Nineveh a long, long way. And what that speaks to me is that there is a choice involved with our obedience. There's a choice involved that you and I must make and continually make to say yes to Jesus. And a lot of times that's not easy. God does not want um, us to be robots and just say yes, 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 yes. He's into shaping the motivations of our hearts. More on that here just in like two seconds. This is a choice. And what I see happening here in these first five verses in chapter three is that Jonah, through the land journey and through the non-immediacy of the whole thing, has a choice to make. He's working out his obedience to God. And how many times is that true of our lives? As we said last Sunday, we're all in process. And here I see Jonah processing out what it means to carry the word of the Lord to a people he particularly, he doesn't love them. He, he doesn't even like them. He wishes that God would destroy them. And yet he's saying yes. God cares about the motivations of our heart. When it comes to obedience, God cares about the way we obey him. 
He's not in it simply for your yes. He wants to transform our hearts in the process. Let's think about it this way. Anybody familiar with kids? <laughs> Any parents out there? Now, no, you wouldn't be familiar with kids. No. How about, uh, just shooting from the hip here, how about bedtime? Let's take bedtime. Kids, it's time to go to bed. Now, you're asking obedience of your child when you ask them to go to bed. Or when you tell them to go to bed for the third time. Second time like Jonah, third time, fourth time, fifth time. You parents know, or anyone who's been around kids know, that there are many different forms that kids' obedience can take. There are many different postures which obedience can take. And if it's true about our kids, it's true about us as well. Here's what I mean. Obedience can sometimes be executed in a way that's from a place of earning favor. You want to get on your parents' good side. You want to be seen as the most favorite in class. You want to be a good little boy or a good little girl. You want to please. Another form obedience can take is one from fear, fear of punishment. I have to do this or I'm going to get called for it and things won't be good. Another form obedience can take is one from obligation. We do things because we have to, not because we get to. You know, begrudgingly, it's like, okay, I'll go to bed. Turn off your phone, leave it downstairs, take out your, okay, I'll go to bed. You know, we, we're, so, we're so begrudgingly giving Jesus our yes, it might as well not be a yes at all, really. The why in our obedience is important, and it should flow from a place of love. How many of you know that when obedience flows from a place of love, it's there. It's that place we're fulfilling the commandment that Jesus gave us. And I don't think it's much of a commandment to pass guilt on us. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But I just think it's more of just, this is the way it'll happen for you. How, how, uh, how difficult is it to obey someone you don't love? Don't you find in your journey that it's much more easier to obey somebody who you love? Now, those of you who are saying, you don't know my husband or you don't know my spouse. I love them a lot. <laughs> that was a joke. Just to make sure I'm not in hot water. That was a joke. It's much easier to obey someone you love. You know, Jesus finished what Jonah didn't. This obedience that flows from a place of love focuses on other people. It focuses on others. 
But obedience that comes out of a place of obligation or to earn favor is completely focused where? On ourselves. I love how it says that Jonah rose and he went. The Hebrew there for that, uh, for that word there, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh is sort of passive. In the Hebrew, it's active. He rose up and he went. And I love that about the verse because he, he actually put wheels to what God was speaking him, telling him to do. Where in the first chapter, he did it. And there's some great commission stuff in here that I wanted to get after. In Matthew 28, let's read it. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. We're told this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Difficult assignment. What could be, is there anything more difficult than getting people to obey? Anybody? No, there's not. But the Holy Spirit is the tool, the Holy Spirit is the power source that gives fuel to the Great Commission. The Holy Spirit empowers us to act, if you break it down at its foundational level, the Holy Spirit is the one who initiates with us to give Jesus our yes. You know, we're only saying yes as far and as deep as the Holy Spirit has penetrated our hearts. And if we're to enact this great co-mission, it's truly a partnership with the Holy Spirit you know, it's not this picture of Jonah where he's like dragging Jonah by the bit. You know, Jonah's trying to run away the other direction. On this side of the cross, this is why Jesus says, there's one like Jonah here, but he's greater. Jesus is greater because he compels us from a place of love. He compels obedience from a place of love. You know, and I don't bring up this this excerpt from the Great Commission as a sense of like a drive-by guilting on all of us either. That's not what's happening here. That's not what I'm trying to do. Because actually, you all do a great job of saying yes to Jesus in a lot of hard situations. You know, and, and if I were to guilt you over with the Great Commission, see, therefore, go, Jesus says, now go do it. You know, that, that only produces obedience that's motivated by guilt. And that's not what God wants from us. So this isn't like a drive-by guilting, but this is a challenge for all of us. You know, that all of us are called. There's no exceptions here in the Great Commission, all of us are called, whether we're introverted or extroverted, to go. Jonah got up, he arose, and he went. And he went 
notice, to people he didn't care for. He wanted God to destroy them. God's not called us to be safe or to be comfortable. And we're, we're a pretty missional church, I'd say. There's room for us to grow, to bringing life to the city, to be outward focused. But you all do a pretty good job at that. And so this morning is about receiving that invitation to say yes to Jesus from a place that flows out of love for him. Not motivated by guilt or fear of punishment or obligation or, or begrudgingly just like, you know, grin and bear it while we're gnawing our teeth saying yes to Jesus. That's not what this is about, but it's about obeying, saying yes to Jesus in the thing that he's calling you to be and to do from a place of love for him. He's transformed your life. He's penetrated all those places in your heart to get to who you really are. And he's taken that heart of stone and he's transformed it into a heart of flesh. Not so you could just sneak away in your prayer closet, and that's great if you have one, not critiquing the prayer closet, but not just to sneak away and hide that, but to offer that to others. God has transformed my life and he can transform your life too. I was given a second chance and you can have a second chance too. That's the heart of the gospel right there. That Jonah was called not to be safe or comfortable, but to engage with the people he didn't even particularly like. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, said that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And we often think that we have to grow enough faith in order to risk for the kingdom of God. But what Wimber is saying here in the reality of the good news of the gospel is that it's actually the opposite. That we risk in order that we grow. We don't try to grow enough faith, you know, muster it up in order that we'll feel ready to risk. When were you ever ready for anything? When was I ready to get married? When was I ready to have kids? When was I ready to step into leadership? When was I ready? When was I ready? God's like, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Risk. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality was that Jonah was called to a place that was already being prepared by God. And what was he called to say? He didn't know particularly, specifically. The text never tells us. He was told where, and he was told what, generally. He was told where, Nineveh. He was told what, what was it? The words that I give you. He didn't know what he was going to say. And then he gives the shortest sermon ever. It's five Hebrew words. Here it is. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown or overturned. Great sermon, right? Great sermon. I guess 
you're probably wishing that this sermon was more like that one. Five words and out. (laughs) Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. You know, Jonah gives the message that God gives him. And this is important for us to realize because in it we find a freedom to understand that the results aren't up to us. You know, great sermon. It's like doom and gloom. 40 more days in Nineveh and you're all going to burn. Like, what is that? But what happens? The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. We read later, even the cows, even the cows are fasting in Nineveh. Even the cows put on sackcloth. What is that? Even the king, let alone the cows, the king himself repents. When do you ever see that happen? From a five-word sermon? It seems like everyone in this story is awake to God but Jonah. You know, there's history to tell us that God had been preparing the Ninevites through things like calamity, like famine or whatnot, preparing the Assyrians to receive this word from God. And here's the thing. Here's the thing all of us have found about following the call of God through and in the waters. That God is God and he doesn't act as we think the Almighty should. In good faith, we follow God. We might follow him to different places. We follow him to the city. We follow him to the suburbs. We follow him to rural America, wherever you feel like you're called to be, geographically or emotionally or to a group of people. We follow him there, and we're prepared to bring God's word to that place. And what we find is that God is already there before us. And this is the key where we're going to focus and end this morning, is that we find no people, no place, not even Nineveh, can be properly called God-forsaken. Not even Cleveland. No town is forsaken by God. God has already been there at work in the hearts of the Ninevites, preparing them to receive this. Of all messages, this. When God wants it achieved, it'll get done. How many of us are like, gosh, just give up on Jonah already and find somebody else? Just find somebody else. No, God's committed to both showing mercy to Jonah and to the Ninevites. Both of them. That's amazing. That's astounding. That God doesn't give up on him. That he continues to pursue Jonah's heart and pursue the Ninevites at the same time. Repentance is always a work of God. Always a work of God. And there's no one on the face of the planet where God is not already working. There's room at the table for everybody. You may think that that person who's annoying to you, who's difficult, who sins all the time, is far from God. I've got news to tell you. They may be closer to his heart than you. Here's the fact that a lot of times we run into people who are difficult to love. 
Anybody have any EGRs in their world? My friend Rita calls them EGRs, extra grace required. Well, how many of you know that you are someone's EGR? You ever had that thought about somebody? Oh my gosh, here they come, here they come. I don't, you know, and we're like Jonah and we run the opposite direction when we see that person coming. Someone out there, probably not too many people, you guys are lovely folks, but someone out there thinks that way about you. And when we come into understanding of of this fact, of this reality, it's in that moment where we can see that repentance is only a work of God. That Christ died for us, yet while we were still sinners. That Christ found us easy to love, yet we know the depths of sin that reside in our hearts. He found us easy to love. And that difficult person in your life, Ninevite or not, God loves them so, so much. So, so much. He's been preparing hearts long before this morning for all of you, all of us to be here this morning, to receive his mercy. And the last thing that Jonah 3, 1 through 5 teaches us is that if Jesus has called you to do something crazy, something radical, I mean, if I could count the number of times that I've had somebody come to me and say, I've got this vision. It's going to change your world. I was one of those people. (laughs) And then you come to a place where you're like, gosh, change the world. I can't even change me. But if you've got this thing on your heart that you feel like is so radical and you're going to change the world, you're going to change the city. I mean, Jonah said 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Mic drop out. Whole city repents. How many of you know That if you're called to something like that, it starts in your own backyard doing small, little, insignificant, inconvenient, loving, extra grace required people, things that no one else will see but you and the Lord. Why? Because God never asks you to do that big radical thing for him. God's after your heart. He wants to see that you are, right, faithful with little. Faithful with little, more will be added. Not more will be added to see if you're faithful with little. It's backwards. A lot of times we get it backwards when we get this big grand vision for God and everything that we're going to do for God. God's like, I just want you to carry a bag of groceries for people at Seeds of Hope, you know? I just want you to show love to your parents. I just want you to show love to your spouse. I just want you to raise your kids in integrity. 
You know, little things. And here's the thing about little things, though. And those who have been following Jesus for 30, 40 years know this reality. And, and hopefully I'm growing into it. Is that little things become more little things, become more little things, and they stack up to where you can look back at a long obedience, as Richard Foster says, a long obedience in the same direction, towards Jesus, following his heart. And who knows, maybe someone here this morning will do some radical thing for Jesus, something that brings entire city. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. We want to see that. That's what we're, we're living for the kingdom come. His rule and his reign on our city, not just on, in us, but on our city, on our nation, on the world, that the glory of the knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We're living towards that. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that that starts with little yeses flowing from a place of love, that Jesus has loved me so much I can't help but say yes to him. Why don't you join me in standing?